Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am excited about this week's episode because it is very responsive to some, I don't know if problems are the right word, but but some things I'm thinking about in my own life and my professional life. Washington, D.C. has never been the most lovely place to have disagreements. A lot of the disagreements are not about what they say they are about, uh, but it's become a lot worse lately. And I think the, the quality of discussion, the quality of debate, what's really happening when you think people are arguing about a policy and, in fact, they're arguing about something else entirely, all that has become a lot more prevalent. So it's why I was excited to have my friend Julia Galef on the show. Julia is the host of the Rationally Speaking podcast, which is great and which I recommend to you all. She runs the Update Project, which is a pretty fascinating effort that, that we talk about in this show to help decision makers make argument maps that allow them to understand where their disagreements really lie. She has been working for years in trying to understand cognitive biases, why people make the decisions they do, why it's so hard for us all to change our minds. She, she thinks more than really anybody I know about how to argue, how to debate, how to think better. Um, and, and so we talk about all that in this episode, and we talk about the ways in which even doing that work can can end you in the same place. So, so this is an episode about how to better get information that will help you challenge yourself, and then how to make sure that doing that doesn't put you in a whole new bad place. I'm not sure we come to, to answers, but there's a lot of good tactics, a lot of good tips in this episode from Julia, and, and certainly a lot that it left me thinking about, and, and honestly, in some ways, feeling unresolved on. I think these are very hard issues, but, but Julia's definitely the person to listen to on them. Uh, before we jump in, a couple quick plugs. You should be checking out Worldly, Vox's podcast on foreign affairs. If you have not heard it, the episode recently on ISIS and what happens to them after they lose their caliphate is absolutely fantastic. I learned a huge amount. Uh, it was one of my favorite podcast episodes I've heard in a while. That's Worldly. You can find it wherever you find your podcast. You should also be checking out I Think You're Interesting, where Todd Vanderwerf, uh, our critic at large, is doing interviews like I do on this show with fascinating people in the cultural sphere. Uh, this week's guest is David Lowry, director of A Ghost Story, which is about a, a recently deceased man who returns to his suburban home as a white-sheeted ghost to consult his bereft wife. Uh, it's a really, really amazing film, um, and it's a really amazing conversation. 
As always, please send me your guest requests, your feedback, whatever you might, uh, whatever you think I should see at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, that's EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All that said, here's Julie Galef. Julie Galef, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ezra. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I've been excited to have this conversation for a while. Yeah, me too. So I live in the capital of bad faith, terrible, completely unproductive disagreement. I think that is Would fair that be to say. Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C., yeah. And you spend a lot of your time thinking about working on embodying ways to have more productive disagreement. So I, I am excited to have this conversation with you in part because I would like to take some lessons from it. This has not felt like the most productive period in my life in terms of <laughs> how people talk to one another and which kinds of conversations I'm involved in. But I thought maybe we'd start on how you ended up specializing in meta-argumentation and meta-rationale that you were telling me before before we talked that you began noticing intellectual dishonesty in people at six years old, which is earlier than I began. I think <laughs> I began like noticing that. it yeah. at like 22. Uh, what, what happened <laughs> I mean, at six? Yeah, I didn't have any of these words like intellectual dishonesty or motivated cognition or biases or anything like that, but I definitely have have some very formative memories seared into my brain uh, that that in retrospect, I think those terms apply to. Uh, so for example, I remember being in first grade or second grade, whichever grade you start learning cursive. And I had this friend whose name was also Julie. It was the 80s. So, you know, you were either Julie, Jessica, or Jennifer, if you were a girl. And anyway, so uh, my friend Julie, uh, she was very nice to me, but she could be kind of... Um, kind of bossy or mean to other kids. And so this one day she was making fun of this other girl in our class who was kind of shy and 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 quiet named Mary. And Julie was making fun of Mary for not knowing how to make a cursive Y, like the letter Y in cursive. And I saw this happening and I felt sort of obliged to disclose to Julie, you know, Julie, I don't know how to make a cursive Y either, uh, just so you know, <laughs> to be clear. And Julie looked at me like with sort of confusion, like, why are you even saying that? And she said, yeah, but I'm making fun of Mary. And I realized, oh, it was never about the cursive Y. Like Julie could care less if someone could make a cursive Y. She just wanted to make fun of Mary. And so she's like reached for a thing to make fun of her for. Uh, and this is something that adults do all the time, right? Like we'll complain about... Uh, some character flaw in a politician that we don't like. Um, but if the exact same thing is present in a politician on our side of the aisle, it's totally fine. Um, and Julie, you know, being six years old was sort of more <laughs> transparent about the fact that she was, uh, like picking and choosing things to complain about and that like the desire to mock someone came first and the rationalization came later. Um, but I've sort of carried that memory with me as I as I watched the way that political discourse happens. And that was sort of the first moment that I realized um, that that this kind of phenomenon happens. Yeah, you, you've just explained at least 65% of the debate over the Affordable Care Act, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so this to me is one of the, the scary pieces about this kind of research. I, I got interested a couple of years ago in, in how partisans think about things, right? Well, how cognition works mm -hmm. when you activate people's political identities. And I, I really dug into it for a couple of years. And it's very, very powerful research. And I think the research on motivated reasoning uh, is basically at this point overwhelming. The idea that that we 
evaluate arguments and ideas differently when we have an outcome we want to come to than when we are resistant to that outcome or exactly. than when we have no uh, pre-existing view at all. But one of the hard things about the, that research for me, to go back to the point you were making about us all having this in us, is that it has a quality of staring into the abyss. <laughs> that w when you look at this stuff, it affects all of us. It appears in many cases to affect more informed, uh, more intelligent people, even more so, because they're better at creating arguments that are persuasive in their head. They're better at gathering information that backs up their priors. And you sort of look at it and you think, I can believe this and decide that the entire public sphere is a space of sincere bad faith argumentation um, <laughs> in which people are just backing up what they're what they're already thinking. Or I can go about my life and continue to be a political journalist. And it, how do you how do you absorb this much research on on people's cognitive uh, weaknesses without just sort of falling into a place of none of it mattering? Because you know the human race just kind of muddles forward one way or the other. Well. I mean, I agree with your, uh, with your sort of pessimistic diagnosis of the problem. And, and I think it's, it, that's a really important thing to recognize because without understanding the nature of the problem, without understanding why people are resistant to hard evidence or come up with contorted justifications for things on their side of the aisle, not the other side of the aisle, without understanding the phenomenon of motivated reasoning, I think it's easy to just sort of flail helplessly <laughs> against the problem. I mean, there's a lot of hand-wringing about, well, why aren't people more rational? Why aren't they better at processing evidence? We should be teaching them more critical thinking and logic and probability. Uh, and I think that's all very well-intentioned, but I think I think the bottleneck really is, it, it's not lack of knowledge uh, about logic or probability. It's not lack of skill. For the most part, it's lack of motivation. It's lack of incentive to reach an accurate conclusion. I mean, if you if you think about it, and I know I'm getting away from your question, but just a brief tangent, if, if you think about the incentives that someone that are like an average citizen, an average voter faces, what is their incentive to really have an accurate view on taxes or immigration or, uh, you know, minimum wage, et cetera, on, on any policy issue? Well, it can be irrational I mean, to do so. Yeah, I mean, the, so, right, if, if we think it's a little confusing because the word rational can either refer to uh, forming beliefs in an accurate way or it can refer to making choices that sort of optimize for your goals, for the things you care about. And so um, they are being irrational uh, in, in the first sense, in the way that they, uh, like in the accuracy of the beliefs that they're forming, but they're not necessarily being irrational in the second sense because as an average citizen, having an accurate model of, you know, tax policy or immigration or whatever doesn't really help you. Like it certainly doesn't help you directly in any large way. Even if you're altruistic and you really care about helping the country and making sure that America has a, a bright future and so on, it still doesn't help you really to have, uh, like even given those goals to have an accurate model of these policy questions because you have so little ability to impact what happens based on that model. Um, as a voter, your the impact of your vote is kind of negligible. And, and, you know, it's like very effortful to like stay up to date and really think about your beliefs and really question things. It takes a lot of effort. Uh, and then on the other side of the equation, you have all of these tantalizing benefits 
of just believing, you know, whatever is very validating for your particular political tribal identity. Uh, like it's great. It makes you feel great. It makes you feel proud. It makes you feel smug. You get the pleasure of looking down on the other side. These are like very concrete, direct and immediate benefits, um, that are being weighed against the kind of negligible benefits of forming an accurate model. So, so this is, I think, the nature of the problem that we're facing. And this is why I'm kind of pessimistic about teaching, you know, probability and logic in schools being a, a sort of tractable solution to the problem of general public irrationality about politics. What have you learned about changing your mind? Because I think the the act of changing your mind, probably changing your mind around something that you have some investment in believing, is one of the crucial questions here. Can we change our mind? And, and, and what are the conditions under which we can change our mind? Yeah, so I think this also comes back to incentives. It comes down to, do you feel rewarded or do you get some benefit out of having accurate views, out of out of revising your views to make them more accurate? Or do you instead get punished um, in the sense of uh, feeling stressed out or feeling bad about yourself that you were wrong in the past? Um, or, I mean, incentives don't have to just be internal emotional incentives. They can be external as well. In fact, can, that's usually the way people use the word incentives. I'm using it in, in a somewhat broader sense. Can I ask um, you a there, clarifying you know, question here real quick? Yeah, sure. How are you using the word accurate? Because oh, one of the difficulties here is that nobody ever says, oh, my incentives are to have an inaccurate view. But because we have well, firsthand... actually, sometimes they do. You should come out to Silicon Valley more. <laughs> Fair enough. And, uh, <laughs> talk to some founders trying to get uh, seed capital. Fair enough. But um, but but in a in a broader sense, right? That we have we have so little firsthand knowledge. It is, I I'll use climate change as an example because it's something I believe in, and and I take the position that a lot of people have developed an inaccurate view about it. But I have no way of personally verifying, or I am at least not willing to put in the time to personally verify observations about CO2 emissions, to sort of learn the science completely from the ground up, to go run my own experimentation, and to sort of rederive the body of knowledge. And people end up with very different ideas of what it would mean to have an accurate view. And, and when you get down to bedrock, it's often very hard to disprove it. Sometimes the evidence we have isn't great and it's just suggestive. Sometimes they're just you know, people believe sources that are incredible. So how, when you use the word accurate there, what is embedded in that? Are, are you a, a relativist now, Ezra? Um, I'm just a, I'm just a, uh, a man sitting completely befuddled in a storm. Of, <laughs> um... Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I guess the way I would say it, the, the, uh, on the joke of am I relativist, is that I spend a lot of time talking to people who I think are really, really smart who believe very different things than I do. And I think yes, do so yeah. with a, a good heart. Yep. And oftentimes when I get down to the bottom with them, what I find is that there is just enough information in the world and we have so few ways of proving or disproving it that if you want to argue for anything, you really can. Conspiracy theorists are incredibly informed on the things they have conspiracies about. And just the work of disproving every individual piece of it is very difficult. So what people are doing when they think they're creating an accurate model of the world seems really important. Because even if you got everything else right, if your definition of accuracy was somehow wrong or you're not, there's not a, a clear way to check it, you can still go wildly awry even with a good process. I completely agree with all of that. Uh, 
the thing is, we still have to make decisions, even under all of this uncertainty, uh, and even under all of this meta uncertainty about whether we're using good reasoning processes and, you know, whether we're actually reasoning or whether we're just rationalizing things that, you know, we have some other emotional motivation to believe. We still, at the end of the day, have to decide. Um, and I think, I think it's all too easy if you want to, to use this uncertainty and the lack of a sort of definitive proof, like provable, uh, uh, conclusion, like the lack of ability to sort of prove definitively that one side is one, one view is correct. It's easy to use that uncertainty as a justification for sort of throwing your hands up and doing whatever you already wanted to do anyway. Um, but you know, people who I, I I've certainly had people argue that to me that like, well, there's no real, there, there's nothing in practice such as truth or accuracy because you can never know for sure. But then if you look at how they actually behave in contexts that matter to them, like in their business, they do seem to behave as if educated guesses can be better or worse. You know, they don't just throw up their hands and say like, well, we can never know for sure uh, which strategy is going to increase uh, profits. They try to guess and they try to get as much evidence as they can uh, under their constraints and, you know, try to reason through it. And of course, they know they're going to make some mistakes, but they still seem to think that uh, there are better and worse ways to do that. And that just throwing up your hands and like picking randomly is probably worse than, you know, gathering some evidence, testing your assumptions, checking with people who disagree with you to see if you've missed something, et cetera. Like there are a bunch of kind of common sense things that if you're motivated to, you can do to, to probably predictably improve the accuracy of your judgments. Um, and of course, in business, you do, you do kind of find out to some extent, you find out if, uh, you were using good processes because you find out if, you know, profits went up or down. Um, and you know, there's a lot of randomness in there as well, but you get some feedback. And for something like, uh, I don't know, like global catastrophic risks, like, like, should we be worried about the risk of a pandemic? Um, we don't get a lot of information about that day to day. There's not like a counter in the sky that tells us like, uh, you, you're right that, that, you know, uh, the, the thing that we did to, to, uh, investigate new vaccines reduced our risk by this exact amount. We don't get to find that out. Um, but I think we shouldn't expect that there's a huge difference between the kinds of educated guesses, the way that we're making educated guesses in near-term problems like business decision-making, uh, and then the way that we're making educated guesses in things that we don't get as much concrete and immediate feedback on. So that, does that, that make sense? That does make sense. Um, although I think it, it it speaks to what's so difficult here, right? Because in business, accurate almost means did I make more money? <laughs> like I have. Well, I, I mean, accuracy is a tool that you can right. use to make more money. But it yeah. it just it has that external check. Um, yes. Whereas in, I mean, I think uh, I think of a lot of things in in politics where one, and, and this might be bad faith, but I don't think people do it in bad faith. People's what they are trying to achieve often shifts over time, right? From the way they, they begin to judge things based on different criteria, but also sometimes just it's just hard to say, right? Did a particular policy work? Well, it's just just hard to say because um, a, a lot was going on. But then how it's does true. that? And you see this yeah. with, oh, sorry, just briefly, Please. you see this with the way people react to um, probabilistic forecasts. Like, uh, you know, there's a, an eighty percent chance that Hillary is going to win the election, and then Trump wins. Uh, 
does that mean that we were inaccurate in the way that we constructed that forecast? Yeah. It's really hard to say if, you know, looking at any one case in isolation, because even if you were perfectly calibrated with that 80% prediction, still 20% of the time uh, in that situation, you're going to end up with the outcome that seemed less likely. So uh, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, basically, that uh, in any one case uh, or even a small collection of cases, it's really hard to know if you were using good processes um, to, to form your predictions. I think political forecasting is such a it's such a wonderful example here. So my, my quick rant on that is, you know how mm-hmm. on the packaging of Q-tips, they say, please don't put these in your ear. Yeah. And then everybody buys them. And the only thing people, not the only thing, obviously people use them to remove makeup, but what a lot of people do with Q-tips is buy them and immediately stick them as far into their ear as they possibly can. Because <laughs> like, that's what you use a Q-tip for. And like the Q-tip company knows this perfectly well and continues to produce uh-huh. Q-tips for this large, put them in your ear market. I think political forecasting is a lot like that, uh, where what <laughs> the political forecasters, and I like these folks, Nate Silver and Nate Cohen and, and the others, what they are saying is, hey, listen, we are giving you an accurate probabilistic forecast. And what you really need to understand is that the thing this is showing you is that there is uncertainty in the election. This is fundamentally a tool to show you that there is uncertainty in elections. And mm-hmm. what everybody is doing, and they know this perfectly well, is running and refreshing the 538 model or the upshot model or whatever model they're looking at 12 times a day to get certainty. To get the one, to get a, an emotional feeling of certainty, the one thing they were told that they're but not. But do you really to be think that the for. forecasters themselves are on any level trying to give people certainty? No, really? that's my point. That they are. Well, I think they know that's what people are doing, but they are trying in every way they possibly can to say, "Hey, we have made this product for you. Please do not put it in your ear." Oh, I see. And I, everybody for some goes I thought, and puts a thing in your ear in their got ears. Got it. They I thought you were implying that Q-tip manufacturers like actually do want people to put the things in their ears because I, that's that's I what think, keeps people buying their products. I think Q-tip no, manufacturers that... and Nate Silver and Nate Cohn and a box when we've done forecasting, we all know <laughs> that people do not, that people kind of hear the headline number and hear the uncertainty less loudly. And like, it's okay, with, you know, like we we move on with our lives because you can't, you can't decide how everybody interprets your work. But you know it's just I wish one of forecasters... those things. Yeah. What might help with this and, and, you know, whether forecasters chose to do this might be a, a sign of whether they genuinely want people to, to feel the right level of uncertainty. Um, before the 2016 election, um, one of my friends or friends of a friend created a site, um, where you would refresh the site and each time it refreshed, it would tell you whether Trump or Hillary won the election and it was randomly determined. But the randomness, the the probability of Trump coming up as the winner was uh, it was tracking with whatever sort of the best odds were from the prediction markets on that day. And so you could really get kind of a visceral sense of the odds by just refreshing the page a bunch of times oh. and noticing like, gee, uh, Trump's coming up the winner, like not the majority of the time, but it's. It, it, it's happened a bunch of times, you know, maybe this is like a real thing. I shouldn't, I shouldn't just be like rounding down from 20% to zero in my head. Uh, and this is a, this is something that I think humans are just pretty bad at. Like we, I don't really think we evolved to, uh, to handle abstract statistics and probability well, but something like this can kind of take the, the abstract probability and put it into a visceral frequency that we're actually experiencing. I wish there was more of that. 
So then following the winding conversations, the winding path that my conversations always do, how do I change my mind? Right. Oh, okay. Great. Um, so I think a large part of the problem, as I started to say and then got sidetracked, is creating the right incentives for yourself um, such that you feel less less incentive to hold onto whatever beliefs you had in the past, because that's one of the main things disincentivizing us from being willing to consider evidence that contradicts our current beliefs. So uh, there are a bunch of things that that create this kind of commitment to past beliefs. So for example, there's a bunch of research on commitment and consistency effects and how when we take a position, um, especially publicly, we feel like we've sort of staked that out as our position and we now need to defend it or else we look and feel inconsistent. So even even when someone's just going through the motions at first, like you give someone $5 to you know, write a, a position paper on why they support gun control or just to like write a short testimonial for why they like a certain product, even though they know they're just being paid to write it, as soon as they've taken that position, they're more likely to support it in the future when you, you know, give them polls in a different context. And so... Wait, hold on. I, I want to I wanna yeah. understand that study real quick. So you're saying that, because I've not seen this before. So if you just have somebody take a position for no reason at all, you've just asked them to write down, I, Ezra Klein, think mayonnaise is delicious, which in, in point of fact, um, it is. The fact <laughs> I that agree I, with you, but I think you probably just alienated half your audience right there. That might be right. And also now I'm vegan, so I don't get to eat it. So <laughs> it's all, yeah, it's just all don't say cut. anything about pineapple on pizza <laughs> yeah, and you're right. fine. Oh, that's good. Okay. So I, as a client, <laughs> believe pineapple on pizza is delicious. <laughs> having done that, having taken that position for whatever reason, in a separate context later on, I will be more likely to affirm it. That's right. Like that the the effect it's having on me, the the con- the commitment effect is operating independently of my rational understanding for why I made that commitment in the first place. That's right. Yeah. There are even stories of that happening in in POW camps um, where I guess this was during the Cold War. Maybe maybe this was in Vietnam. I'm forgetting the exact war. But the the prisoners were, were given little rewards like cigarettes or extra rations, food for, um, for like writing uh, testimonials about why communism was so great. Uh, and then at the end of the war, those soldiers were m- like much more likely to actually defend communism, even though they, you know, were no longer being forced to or rewarded for it. There's different stories you could tell and I'm about why this phenomenon exists. And I'm not sure that anyone has sort of definitively disentangled them. One story you could tell is that we sort of on some level want to show strength and consistency as a way to sort of demonstrate that we can be trusted to our our fellow you know tribes people and so there's that kind of social signaling pressure trying to get us or like forcing us to be consistent uh, a different story you could tell is that we kind of our our beliefs aren't all that fixed and we in order to to figure out what we believe we look at what we've said and done in the past as a as a cue to see like oh well I've I've you know, defended this thing in the past, I must believe it. And that's sort of happening on some subconscious level. So the exact phenomenon, the exact mechanism is not super clear, but it there is a fairly large body of evidence suggesting that we feel unconscious pressure to stick to positions that we've stated in the past. And I, I you know, I see this happening even on the scale of like a single meeting. Like if I throw out an idea in a meeting and I'm, I haven't really thought about it too hard, I'm just sort of suggesting it. 
then suddenly it, it feels like, oh, that's Julia's idea. And now I have to like defend it whenever anyone criticizes it instead of saying like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> Maybe that isn't a good idea after all. So anyway, this is, this was all to answer your question about how do you make it easier for yourself to change your mind? And I think noticing cases where you might have committed yourself in the past to a particular belief structure is really helpful. Like if I look back at things that I've defended publicly, like, I don't know, the, the usefulness of rational decision-making, for example, those are going to be the cases where, uh, you know, I may not be wrong, but if there, if there were evidence that undermined, uh, the accuracy or the usefulness of my message, I would have an incentive to not notice it or to rationalize away why it's, you know, why it's wrong or irrelevant. And so I want to be sort of especially on guard for looking, looking for cases like that. Um, and sort of push harder on my beliefs in those cases. And like a similar lesson that you could derive from this is that you want to keep your identity small. Um, there are all of these things that become a part of our identity, like our political beliefs or religious beliefs or even our lifestyle choices. Like, you know, whether you're, you know, going to be a stay at home mom or, or work, um, or whether you're going to eat paleo or vegan. Um, not that vegan is just a lifestyle choice. I think it has a moral component too, but for some people, it's a lifestyle choice. Um, those are all things that, that feel part of our identity in the sense that when, when they get criticized, it feels like we are sort of personally being criticized and we get extra defensive. And so Paul Graham has this great essay titled, Keep Your Identity Small, where he basically says, you know, given how hard it is to think clearly and objectively about things that are part of identity, um, like one good strategy is to not let those things into your identity and not sort of pride yourself on having those beliefs. I think that's a really, it's a really interesting and impractical point. Um, I used to, uh, as a writer, get shit from people because I, I won't say I'm liberal. Uh, and, you know, yeah. in current American politics, clearly where my political opinions fall is left of center. There might be other points when that's not true, but but it's true now. But my thinking on this from a lot of that research I read was, was sort of similar, that when you begin saying, hey, I'm X, then all of a sudden yeah. people who are also X become more credible to you. People who are not X become less credible to you. And you're hurting your own thinking uh, in, in ways that in ways that are going to uh, degrade the quality of what you can learn and who you can listen to. And, you know, I think people take it as a... Um, like, an, I've, I've, particularly conservatives have been pissed off about it at me because <laughs> they think I'm hiding something, but it's actually an attempt yeah. at times to try to listen better because I've just found in myself that the more I lean into any, the more I label my own identities, the better I become at um, confirming them just constantly. Yeah, I, I agree with you on both counts. First, on why it's valuable to try to resist these labels, but also on why it's kind of difficult in practice because words, labels are useful. Right. They're useful for communicating information. And it's kind of hard and clunky and sometimes comes off as disingenuous to, to keep saying like, I'm a person who currently agrees with a lot of right. liberal positions relative <laughs> to conservative positions. Like that is clunky and sort of makes people look askance at you. I remember uh, we've talked a little bit about the rationalist community. Rationalists tend to share this aversion to labels. And so they, you know, would hate calling themselves rationalists. I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, it's just so hard to refer to this cluster of views or this sort of social cluster without a label. Um, so then people were like, well, what if instead 
of calling ourselves rationalists, we called us ourselves aspiring rationalists. Maybe that would sort of help emphasize that we, you know, don't have all the answers yet and we aren't perfectly rational. It's just such a long word and it really didn't pick up steam as a label. So I think, yeah, in practice, the challenges are hard, but you know, there are still things you can do. Like you can, uh, you can sort of make an effort to pay extra attention to aspects of the liberal platform that you, you know, don't agree with quite as much. Um, if you notice yourself like feeling smug when you read an article that's like arguing from a liberal point of view, you can like make an extra effort to look for flaws in it or to like try to steel man the other side, try to sort of see the other side more charitably. So there are sort of like course correctives you can do that I think can be really helpful. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So I'm interested in these course correctives because something that, that you've said here is that when you know something is pushing on your identity, you can you can work harder to be aware of that. But my read of a lot of this research is, is working harder isn't going to do it. The, the, the problem oftentimes is very embedded in even what you're going to see as credible and not credible. So it seems to me you need to build systems that are a little bit independent of you. You need a, a mode of knowing that you are not in, in full, constant control of. And I'm curious if you, if you yeah. build those. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The more you can externalize uh, and, and automate these processes, the better they're going to work. This is true of, of basically any behavioral change, any habit change. Uh, the more sort of constant effort you have to be exerting, the less uh, likely you are to succeed. Yeah, so a, a few things. Uh, one thing I'll say is that it can be really helpful to surround yourself with other people who aspire to the kinds of virtues that you are aspiring to as well, like the kinds of people who will reward you socially for doing things that improve your accuracy over time instead of reduce your accuracy over time. So like people who admire it when you add a caveat to your position or add some nuance or when you 
say, you know, last year I was arguing X. Now I think X prime, it's like a, you know, slightly revised version of X or, you know, my error bars are wider now than they were before around X, et cetera. It can be really helpful to have people sort of find that cool or impressive or just give you positive feedback. The, the behavior that we unconsciously strive for is shaped in large part by the social cues that we get from the, you know, other primates in our tribe, basically. Um, so that's, that's one sort of external system, um, that doesn't require as much constant effort. Another thing you can do is just set up the information that you're getting such that you're getting opposing perspectives that are interesting and more likely to challenge you in ways that you find pleasurable and not annoying. <laughs> like this is something that I think people often get wrong about how to change their mind. Like, They'll say, oh, you should look for news sources that are 180 degrees opposed to you, like someone who believes something completely different than you. Um, and I think that doesn't work that well, partly because you just don't have a lot of shared premises to, uh, to, to argue from, but also because emotionally, like someone who's 180 degrees, uh, away from you is, is probably going to annoy you. <laughs> like, it's going to make it really hard for you to be genuinely curious about why they believe something so differently uh, from you. So I have this this sort of implicit mental uh, graph of different blogs or news sources where one of the axes is sort of political leanings with like maybe more social justice on one end of the spectrum and more conservative on the other end of the spectrum or libertarian. It's not an exact, you know, single linear spectrum, but uh, and then the other axis is sort of thinking style, um, where like closer to me would be maybe more like more like an analytic philosopher, more focused on uh, empirics, less emotional. And then farther away, you get news sources that are or, or like bloggers that are maybe more emotional or rhetorical and less analytical. There's some people who are like very similar to me and they're very like fun to read and can be informative, but they're less likely to change my mind. And there are other people who are like very different on both axes. They're like super social justice and really emotional or super conservative and really emotional. Um, and they're also less likely to change my mind. And I'm looking for something more in the middle where they, you know, they, they're very close to me on the analytical, uh, end of the spectrum, like the thinking style end of the spectrum, but they have like somewhat different policy views than I do, or they're like somewhat more sympathetic to social justice than I am. Uh, and those people I can, I can learn a lot from, or someone who's, you know, uh, maybe pretty similar to me in, in their values, but their way of arguing is somewhat different than mine. It's like less analytical. Those people I learn more about, like how to think differently and different ways of thinking about evidence. So I, I strongly agree with that, that, that when you look for people who believe different things in you, you want to find people who you connect to in other ways. Uh, Dan Kahan, who's a Yale law professor, does a lot of research in this area, once explained to me, he said that like, I look for people who I disagree with on some things, but otherwise are part of my tribe. Yes, and I always yeah, thought that exactly. was a very good way of putting it. But okay, yeah. now I want to tip us into the total fucking abyss. Because <laughs> okay. like we've, we've hit the point in the conversation where I, I will note, for instance, that the sub-theme of this conversation is, aren't we great? Aren't we great sitting here talking about how to hear opposing opinions and change our minds? And <laughs> so one thing that, you know, I'll call, quote unquote, the rationalist community, but uh -huh. I, I do think a lot of people uh, within it seem to refer to it that way. Yeah, we, we tried the whole quote-unquote thing, too. That also didn't, <laughs> that didn't work out. <laughs> so there are a lot of folks sort of coming out of um, places like Less Wrong, but but there are a lot of people, I think, who, and, and, you know, me to some degree, who 
online like to argue from these premises is that the, the, the core of the argument is actually just about meta-rationality. And something that I think that community really front loads in a way that is both incredibly beneficial and then incredibly destructive is the idea of signaling. There is a huge amount of the way people operate in the world and the way they talk to each other and the way they try to portray themselves in arguments that folks would say, actually, what's really happening is you're not trying to get to the right answer there. You're trying to show you're a nice guy. You're trying Uh to show you're open-minded. Virtue signaling. And that's true. And then it's turtles all the way down, right? Oh, yeah. Well, by saying that, you're just signaling back at me that you sort of know how the game works. And, you're, <laughs> you, know, and you yeah, end up. I mean, this, this is a great example of, of uh, how learning about biases can give you tools to remain as biased as you want to be. Exactly. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give a good example of this and one that makes me look bad. <laughs> I like, I, I like, I personally, emotionally like, and people are going to hear this and they're going to give me shit for it like they do every time I say it. I feel more comfortable as a person sort of having these nice arguments with people where it's like, oh, you know, everybody's sincere and they're doing their best and they make some good points, but I just in the end come down here. But, you know, so, but but we can all, we can all disagree. And so on my other podcast, Weeds, Matt Iglesias and I have, as we've had for years, this sort of running uh, debate about Paul Ryan, where I disagree with Paul Ryan, but have traditionally been friendlier to his motivations than Matt. Mm-hmm. And Matt disagrees with Paul Ryan and has traditionally been less friendly <laughs> to his motivations than me. Mm-hmm. And I have just been shown up um, like the last couple of years. Like Matt has just turned out to be right. Like the stuff I said about how the policy would get better and not better from my perspective, but just places where there was um, poor construction or magic asterisks would go away. Um, That's or, really great, by the way, that that you uh, cashed out your your belief in sort of concrete predictions that that would come true or not in in the near term so you could sort of see how your how your view is holding up over time yeah People thank often you don't I'm, do that. I'm terrific i'm i'm really something <laughs> <laughs> am i undermining your your attempt at being self-deprecating i'm but, sorry but what i am saying is that you know i think the the negative view of sort of my position in this debate versus people like iglesias or paul krugman or john shade in in this particular area was that you know i think that the uncharitable view of me is he just likes being seen as this sort of honest broker or more generous. There's a way of extending charitability. Oh, he being you. He being you, me. I'm sorry. Yeah. You had a motivation to, to exactly. It's virtue signaling. You Paul Ryan sympathetically because you like the idea of being the kind of person who's exactly. charitable and generous. Got um, it. Yeah. And the appearance and the appearance of charitability is a very powerful signaling tool, but it can also lead you completely astray. Um, sometimes. I feel I feel particularly on healthcare, which I've been covering now for a couple of years, that I've been chasing down a bunch of arguments very generously on the right that now that we have seen where the bottom lines lay, it was just bullshit up and down, like bullshit up and down. Yeah. Like stuff about how the original Affordable Care Act process was behind closed doors and there were these backroom deals and there weren't enough hearings and now we're here and yeah. like it actually is behind closed doors and there are no hearings at all and there are more closed yeah. doors. And I took it all seriously. And in some ways, I feel like I completely misserved my audience. And so one of the things that I worry about in this work is I think a place where it very naturally leads you to is I should be nicer. I should be more generous. I should be more skeptical of my own motivations. But the place that that can tip you is to become incredulous, 
to becoming unable to call bullshit bullshit, to becoming um, a poor guide for yourself or for others because you're so skeptical of yourself and you're so concerned about your own cognitive biases that you begin to extend people charity that they're also working off of all these cognitive biases and that that charity ultimately ends up um, being betrayed. It's funny. I, I mean, I also, you know, at least as much as you care about being self-skeptical and so on. And yet I don't feel like that's made me super charitable <laughs> towards politicians. So that may not be a u- universal effect of this focus on skepticism and rationality. Can, can I offer I, a guess, yeah. though? It's probably sure. made you more charitable towards people more in your world, right? Like people more in the sort of broader rationalist community, the social justice versus non-social justice, that there's probably people who are more where you judge your own mediation. I guess I don't know this for sure. I'm just curious if it, it sounds right. But like politicians are people in my world, right? I have to cover them. And so that's where I'm sort of operating as a mediator. Mm-hmm. But you're operating as a mediator in, in a pretty different space, and my guess, just knowing the ideas around that space, is some of them you find reasonably intolerable. <laughs> but that there's a good feeling to, um, you know, being a sort of a, a useful bridge between the people who love the neo-reactionaries and the the folks who, you know, are a little bit more social justice and are having <laughs> these, like, smart there- arguments, but um, but maybe not nice ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, there aren't too many people who love the neo-reactionaries. Um fortunately, from my perspective. <laughs> but uh, to get to your more central point, um, I mean, I agree it's really hard. Uh, I a, a rule of thumb that I try to follow is whenever it, it feels particularly good to take a position, I should be sort of extra suspicious of that. The trigger will be I notice that I'm feeling good about my view that, you know, so-and-so is probably well-intentioned, um, to take your example. Uh, and that's like a little alarm that goes off my brain that I should, you know, be a little more skeptical of that view of mine. I mean, I'm not going to say that this stuff doesn't take any effort. It does. I think it's worth it. And I think there are ways to reduce the amount of effort it takes over time by like externalizing things and kind of building habits that become more automatic, but it, it's still going to be some extra cognitive overhead. What was your question? I'm sorry. So I guess <laughs> you, my, my asking, question is, yeah. how do you... So. I so we started here talking about the ways to extend charity, the ways to think about changing your mind. Yeah. And my question is how do you keep that from becoming an extension of charity or a, credul- a credulity about your own thoughts, your own side, so to speak, that actually can take you in in the opposite direction because you can very you can very easily your identity can move from liberal or conservative to um super charitable arguer on the internet or rationalist, which I think has a lot of internal herd-like behaviors, a lot of ways it signals um, belonging to the community, a lot of very distinct idiosyncratic concerns and argumentative styles um, that are just operating off of different axes. I, I guess the point is that it seems that these things, there's so many ways to construct an identity that as soon as you begin to free yourself of one, you're already trapped in another. But don't you think that some identities are more harmful epistemically than other identities? No, I certainly but do. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, you know, having an identity that's built around being, you know, a good and virtuous person who is al- always charitable to others, that does seem like the kind of thing I would expect to 
distort your the accuracy of your judgments about other people's motivations, just just as you've found. Um, but having an identity of someone who is like unafraid to look reality in the face, even if the truth isn't necessarily flattering or convenient or validating. It's not going to make you right all the time, but it seems like the kind of your unconscious motivations are always going to be nudging your judgment, but it seems like having motivations to live up to that identity is nudging is more likely to nudge your judgment in useful directions, like useful in the sense of being more accurate than inaccurate directions. So one thing that Do you not I, agree with that? I don't know. So that's a good question. And I'll think it through here live on air. Okay, great. <laughs> so when I, so something that the rationalist community, and, and I, I actually, one reason I'm engaged with it is I, I like a lot of these people a lot and I find it valuable. So, so that's one piece of evidence for, for what you're saying. But uh-huh. something it reminds me of, um, when I came to Washington, D.C., when I got involved in journalism, so I initially, my first job was at a place called The American Prospect, which is uh-huh. a small policy magazine. But The American Prospect was part of a community of small policy magazines, including The New Republic and The Washington Monthly and The National Review and these sort of organizations that it was like my whole world for a little while. The way that world worked was that The New Republic had been the dominant intellectual player, particularly in the late 80s and 90s. And the way they became the dominant intellectual player was like they were the home of counterintuitive journalism. So Mm -hmm. you thought it was like X, but really it's like Y. You thought this was good, but actually it's bad. You thought this was bad, but actually it's amazing. Man. I don't want to say this. I'm sure people did it before them, but they were, I mean, under particularly Michael Kinsley and then as going on after that, like they were the real hyper cerebral argumentation, extremely well constructed, lovely to read, uh, very strong signaling around what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And- and then it became, over time, a positioning device. Counterintuitive work, right, looking for where everybody thinks X, but really it's Y, it can be so great. And then at some point, you're actually, sometimes it's actually just X. And the American prospect, we used to joke, was counter-counterintuitive. You <laughs> thought it was X, and then you thought it was Y, but really it's X. It's what everybody thought it was Maybe, in the first yeah. place. Right, right. Um, Maybe actually pain is bad. Right, exactly. Yeah. And... um. I actually see some of that in the debate, in what we're talking about here. So I think, for instance, the identity of I'm willing to stare reality in the face and see how things really are ends up in practice often being looking for an argument that just seems surprising and weird. And it's like, there's like everybody loves, like particularly if it's well-constructed, people really like an argument that makes them feel like a cold-eyed realist, even if actually that argument is wrong. Um, and there are people who I think do this all the time, who present their work in a sort of jaded pessimism that is that gives it a gravitas that it actually mm-hmm. doesn't deserve. Yeah. You um, know, I've also seen another version of that um, with people who they have kind of a, a cynical view of reality, like of, I don't know, gender relations, for example. It's very like zero sum and all about status and like competition for scarce resources and things like that. And, um, and they will sort of frame that to themselves and certainly to other people as being like, you know, let's just like, let's just confront what's actually true. But on some level, I think they really enjoy the thought that the world works that way. So it's not, (laughs) you know, it's not really avoiding something that feels validating or, or comfortable or convenient. It's, it's doing exactly that, but couching it in terms of like accepting hard truths. Because we all want to feel like we're the ones who are looking at reality the way it really is. That we all want to feel that we're the ones who are 
you know, willing to face up to the hard truths. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. <laughs> uh, honestly, I personally find like the the identity that I was trying to sketch out about like looking reality in the face. I I've personally found it a useful identity for me to cultivate, but I I do sort of try to do these checks of like, well, do I just you know do I have other motivations for wanting to, to decide that this particular thing is, you know, in fact, the cold, hard truth when it's actually a convenient thing for me, et cetera. So I, you know, there might be like additional checks that I'm adding into that strategy that where like the, the pure, simple strategy itself is more exploitable or something. But, you know, we've, this whole conversation, we've sort of been talking as if there's no way to really tell whether the identities that you're using or the strategies that you're using are pushing you more in the direction of accuracy or away from accuracy. Um, but there's a lot to be said for just like making your beliefs explicit enough that the world has the ability to prove you wrong. Professions where people's accuracy rate gets tracked and, and measured are professions where people are pretty accurate. Like weather forecasters are pretty accurate. Political pundits are, you know, not so accurate. Well, especially before the Nate Silver era, you know, if you make some grand claim about how politics are going to change or what's going to happen in the Middle East, like no one really pays attention. And, you know, so you're therefore not incentivized to optim optimize for accuracy. You're incentivized to optimize for saying things that are, you know, confident and attention getting and often, you know, contrarian because that gets a lot of extra attention. Um, but if you are making predictions that you and ideally other people are going to be able to see whether they turned out to be accurate or not, then those kinds of incentives, I think, are the most effective at getting you to actually optimize for accuracy instead of optimizing for something that's convenient and that you can tell yourself is accurate. So like this blogger who's a friend of mine, um, he goes by Scott Alexander. He has a great blog called Slate Star Codex. Uh, every year he makes a whole bunch of predictions ranging from things about his personal life, like will I, you know, finish this particular project or get a new roommate to global predictions, like, you know, will so and so still be the president of this country by this time next year, that kind of thing. Uh, and he, he attaches probability levels to his predictions as well so that he can kind of tell, like, am I calibrated? Like when I say I'm 90% confident about something, does it actually turn out to be true roughly 90% of the time? Or does it turn out to be true roughly like 60% or 50% of the time, which is often the case for humans? Over time, through this incentive system and this sort of repeated feedback, he has actually gotten very calibrated. So the Wait, things that he how, says he's 60% confident in... How do we in, know he's gotten very calibrated? Oh, I mean, every year he goes back and checks the predictions. Mm -hmm. the, these are these are predictions that sort of have a definitive answer. They're not like, is human nature truly good or evil? <laughs> like, it's really hard to uh, to find out if you were right about that in a concrete, definitive way next year. So, you know, he just has a track record uh, and... He, he knows it's public too. So, you know, partly as a result of his own sort of personal pride and also as a result of like wanting to sort of succeed in public, he has an incentive to try to really be accurate when he's making those forecasts. So somebody else that's interesting who does that, uh, and I, I've seen Scott's posts on these, is Larry Summers, uh, the former White House economist. Oh, I didn't know that. That's and cool. he is famous inside the White House where he demands whenever anybody says anything, not anything, but whenever they say, I think this bill will fail, or I think that isn't a good idea. He says, well, give me your probability. And so then people have to say, well, I'm 60% sure that this bill fell. And on the one hand, it always struck me as a good way of finding out what people were really saying. And on the other hand, these spot probability checks 
often strike me as a way of creating false precision, right? That there is the, and I'm, I'm not talking about Scott's thing, which is, you know, he's a, I, I like Scott's blog a lot, um, but whether Larry Summers is right about a bill is sort of different than, you know, whether even I'm right about uh, political predictions. I always wondered if internally the way that worked was to make people seem more expert than they were as opposed huh. to correctly calibrating everyone because people were just sort of being demanded to come up with these quick, you know, well, I'm 35% sure that if we pump this money into rail, that money will be wasted. Whether that is like a, a good way of making sure everybody at the table understands that that person is like not sure or whether that's a way of allowing everybody at the table to think that this is a group of folks who really, really, really know what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to know for sure, but one, I think, suggestive piece of evidence pointing away from the uh, it makes you look like an expert hypothesis is that people tend to be really reluctant to put quantitative you know, probabilities on their on their claims. Uh, and uh, if doing so made you look like an expert, I would expect people to jump at the chance to you know, increase their perceived expertise. That's interesting. So, so why do you think people are are people unwilling to do that? I mean, in my experience, yeah, I, I've, I've kind of recently, you know, thrown up my hands and at least temporarily given up trying to get people who aren't sort of already on board with this practice to put a probability on their claim. Like, you know, this happened before the election. Like I, I was expressing concern and like trepidation that there was a, you know, non-negligible chance that Trump might win. And I had various Facebook friends saying like, Oh, don't worry about it. There's no chance he'll win. Like, 538 is just wrong. Like he can't win because of X, Y, Z reasons. And I sort of would try to get them to like actually put a probability on their claim or, or even better bet with me. Um, not because I really care about the money, but because I think the process of like putting even sort of small stakes on the line and making your claim sort of checkable, uh, incentivizes people to try to, to ask themselves, what do I really think here? Uh, and, and people, are just extremely resistant. They'll, uh, they'll like come up with some reason why they could never actually quantify the odds, or they'll just say, they'll just repeat that they're certain without putting a number on it, et cetera. You have an interesting project around this, this update project you've created. Yeah. Do you want, want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think this is a good, this as a way of making clear what people's disagreements really are, I think it's a pretty interesting approach to that. Yeah. So I've been uh, looking for questions that are important in the sense of the answer to that question having a, a serious impact for how we should be, uh, what actions we should be taking to affect the world or the future. So important questions that thoughtful and well-informed people disagree about. They have, have different models uh, of that question. So for example, should we be concerned about potential risks from artificial intelligence as it becomes more advanced over the years? What, if anything, should we be doing about the housing crisis in San Francisco? Like, should we be building a lot more housing? How much? What are the effects of that going to be? So some of these questions are more empirical. Some of them are more about about values like, well, actually, the example I was going to give is, is sort of a mix. I was going to say uh, the question of whether large-scale philanthropy is undermining democracy is a, a question that's sort of being seriously debated right now. And so what I'm trying to do is just clarify and pin down the structure of the disagreement over these questions. Because what I've found, I don't know how, if this will be obviously true to you or seem counterintuitive, but what I've found is that there's the 
the discourse over these topics, even among the sort of subset of relatively well-informed experts, is extremely disorganized and chaotic and inefficient. So people just, they often aren't aware of why other well-informed people disagree with them. So they like haven't heard good arguments for the other side, or they think they know why other people disagree, but they have this kind of straw man version of the opposing case in their head that isn't the real version. And people end up talking past each other. So like on the AI question, for example, uh, a lot of the debate goes like this. One side says, when AI is sufficiently advanced, it will likely pose great risks to humanity. And the other side says, no, 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 we disagree because we're not going to get advanced AI anytime soon. They're talking past each other. The second position doesn't actually contradict or disagree with the former. And yet we sort of go round and round. And, you know, to be clear, there are often like very sort of reasonable and substantive reasons for the disagreement underneath. Like maybe the second side believes that like, yes, okay, once we had advanced artificial intelligence, it could pose risks. But at this early stage, there's nothing productive we can do about that. And that's sort of the true reason why they, uh, why they like don't take the whole concept of AI risk seriously. But that would be a useful disagreement to have. We could sort of productively disagree over the question of, is there anything we can do now, like about potential future risks from AI? But we can't have that conversation if we're still talking past each other about the higher level question. With all the work you do and, and considering our conversation here on the ways in which people argue things that are not their real position, sometimes quite sincerely, yeah. That in another context, a couple years later, it'll turn out that even if you solved that, they wouldn't have changed their mind on the housing crisis or on healthcare, even on AI. Do you worry that um, a project like this, what it gets people to do is formalize arguments in ways it creates the perception that if we could just all agree on some basic premises, you, we could really have a productive solution and conversation here when in fact these things are you know about why Mary can't draw a cursive Y correctly? <laughs> um, I mean, I I do think that it's uh, it's often quite useful to just do this thought experiment of, you know, this reason that I gave for holding my position, if this reason turned out to be false, would it change my mind about the higher level thing? And often to people's surprise, the answer is no. Uh, I actually I remember at, um, at Vox Conversations last year, I, I led a session on this kind of like mode of approaching disagreements and mapping them out and finding the cruxes of disagreement. And I, I kept trying to emphasize to people like, look, the reason that your brain gives you about why you hold a certain belief about, you know, animals or about the future of AI is often not the true reason you hold that belief. And you have to kind of check to see if that's, uh, if your belief hinges on that reason or not by doing this thought experiment. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. We got it. <laughs> and then in, in one of my practice sessions, I guess we were debating something about intervening in ecosystems. And he said like, oh, I, I don't support it because I don't think that it would work. And I asked him like, are you sure that's your true? Is that really a crux? Like if that, if you change your mind about that, would, would it change your mind? And he's like, yeah, it absolutely would. And I was like, mm, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you to just actually do the thought experiment. And so he did it and he got this look of surprise on his face and realized, oh no, it wouldn't change my mind. Like that actually wasn't a crux for me. That's so striking which was a very satisfying moment for me as a teacher. And then, and he kept returning to that too. Like every five minutes he'd go, it was so interesting that I just thought that was my reason, but it actually wasn't. You've probably read John Haidt's book on... Um, the Righteous Mind. 
Yes, the righteous one. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, And he talks in there, I think it's pretty interesting, about the ways in which people attach pragmatic concerns onto ethical um, or otherwise abstract uh, positions. So it's like incest, people think is bad. It's bad because it could produce, you know— offspring that have genetic defects. Right, but if you But like, like if you every, control for that. Yeah, yeah everybody sorry, gets sterilized and then you can participate in incest. Nobody likes that either. Yep. And there's just all these things like that where uh, you see this a lot. I think one place where you really do see this is um and I actually don't have a strong view on this so I'm not trying to to, to diminish this position. On incest? Well, <laughs> I do have a strong view on that. Okay. Um, but on torture. Uh, uh, people who oppose torture also almost in my experience always believe it is ineffective. And right. people who believe in torture almost always believe it is effective. Now, it seems entirely possible to me that torture is both bad and effective. Yeah. But very few people, that's a much tougher position, in, in part for instrumentalist reasons, right? Like, if you want to get people to stop torturing others, there's a very strong incentive to believe it is not useful, in addition to being morally wrong, because then it's a real easy case to make. And just almost everything in politics is like that. People very rarely say, hey, I believe this, even though it has these bad consequences. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed this a lot in um, when I was more involved with, like, the secular movement, uh, that that atheists would often have uh, a bunch of reasons why religion was sort of harmful for you psychologically and and they would have reasons to discount the research on uh, on why like religion can be good for communities or sort of you know community morale or ethics etc and they may well be right but it was just kind of suspicious that everyone seemed to believe both that religion was false and also that it was unhelpful actually i've seen this with vegans as well that a lot of vegans believe that a uh, eating animals is unethical, and b that that eating animals is less healthy yes, than I being totally vegan. Agree and with it's this. sort of those are sort of independent. They should be independent in theory. You should be like a little surprised. It should be a little coincidental if both of those happen to be true and pointing in the same direction. Yeah, I, that's yeah. actually a pet peeve of mine. That, <laughs> that um, and I used to see this back when I was not a vegan, but more of a foodie. That it was a big uh-huh. belief among foodies that processed food, chain food was bad, but also that it tasted bad as if McDonald's had just fucked Mm. up and all their billions of dollars of R&D had not produced a delicious Big Mac, which clearly it had. (laughs) And yeah, the vegan thing where it's like, it has to also be healthier, does not appear to me at all that it's healthier. Fish seem pretty healthy, uh, but I I think it's bad. It just, it's a very natural way to think, right? For like all the motivated reasoning. And there is evidence, right? I mean, I will get a bunch of emails from vegans being like, but did you see this study about the toxins released when, you know, fish die and blah, 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 blah. And maybe they're right, right? Maybe I'm like, this is why I feel like it's so hard. Yeah, it's a a sign. It's like, um, it's like a cue that you should be extra cautious around that topic. I mean, just like I was saying earlier, if there's, if there's a view that makes me feel good, that doesn't mean it's not correct. It just means I should be a little more skeptical that it is in fact correct. And similar, this is another sort of outside view reason for skepticism. If you notice that your beliefs, beliefs about things that should in theory be independent all happen to line up in this pointing in the same direction to the same policy, you should maybe be a little extra skeptical of that. So going back to the AI, the AI argument map. Yeah. I am somebody who's skeptical of AI arguments. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking about your work on this uh, before this podcast, and I was realizing that if I filled out that map, because I'm skeptical, I would end up like taking off like almost every 
like chain in the thing. That like, it won't happen. Also, if it does, it'll be fine. And also if it isn't, we'll solve it. And also like right, that. Exactly. I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I don't, I'd, I'd have to go through it carefully, but yeah, that it, I don't believe it'll happen. Um, and certainly not anytime soon. I'm not sure. I'm very skeptical if it happened. It would lead to the effects that people who are concerned about this believe it would. If it did lead to the effect, you know, like, and and there are all these like little pieces within there that are that are important too, because you can break it down into a million, a million subgenres. So that yeah. I think is a little bit of my my question for you. How do you, how do you think about getting people within an issue to their root cause? Because I would have issues that aren't even on that map, right? I think a lot of people are worried about AI because people continuously overestimate their own key qualities. And like AI is a version of people who are really into computers and impressed with what they can do with computers, creating like a computer god and Mm -hmm. overestimating, you know, how much analytical intelligence is what allows people to get things done in life, right? There are all these, there are all these reasons that I have that are related to quietly what I think the motivations of that argument are that are maybe unfair, but wouldn't even show up on the map. Uh, well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you, like, the, the whole point of mapping out these arguments is to map out what do people's models actually consist of. So, you know, whatever your, your sort of true considerations are, the considerations that are actually moving you, those should be on the map. I think it can be useful to ask, like, what would I expect to see in a world where I'm right about the reasons why people think AI is a serious concern? Is there anything that I would expect to be likely to happen or not likely to happen in the next five years if I'm right about this? This is one of the things that I find it useful to do in these conversations to uh, extract sort of predictions. Like uh, in one of these conversations, we were talking not about what would the consequences of AI be if it, you know, if we had sort of human level AI, but but about timelines, like, is this something that, that's plausible in the near term or, you know, almost certainly a hundred years away or more or never going to happen, et cetera. And, um, and so for the people who thought, you know, we're making rapid progress and we're, we're likely to have human level AI in, you know, in the next 10, 15 years or something, you can ask them like, okay, what, what would you expect to see in the next two years or something that if it didn't happen would start to cast more doubt on your prediction about timelines? So you might, you know, something that I might, that I think your view implies is that in the next few years, we won't see people who aren't AI scientists start to take AI risk seriously. That like, as AI progresses, it will still just be the people who feel validated by by this idea that AI is going to be super important. It'll just be them being concerned about this problem and not other people. That That seems to me to be like one prediction of your view. I would define it more broadly than AI scientists, but but yes. Sure. Um, yeah, although the yeah. other piece of it is that AI is fun to think about. And so to your point about being a little skeptical of things that make me feel good, I am sometimes a little skeptical of risks that are really sensational. Because, it's, I mean, AI is wonderful, right? I mean, you can write a million amazing science fiction movies about it. We've been talking about AI forever, like all the way going back to Hal. Totally. Uh, and... There are other risks that are just sort of boring and are really complicated, yep. uh, like downstream consequences from collapsing coral reefs. Like, I, I don't think that's a civilizational risk in the way people believe AI is, but I think there are a lot of those kinds of risks that are just really difficult to learn about. 
and the mm-hmm. amount of attention. I'm, I'm actually pro people spending a bit of money trying to think about AI. I actually think it's an interesting thing or my read of it is that the amount of attention it gets in the media, these concerns are way outsized to the amount that is actually being spent on or done about it. So I'm not, I don't want to I think that's true, portray yeah. a, an overly radical position than the one I hold. But I do think that there is a, it's like, a, it's fun, right? Like it's a fun thing to worry about and debate. And it has all these like fun things you can argue. And then there are a lot of unfun risks <laughs> that just suck, yeah. right? Like how do you get people to adhere to medicine therapies in developed countries where it's really hard, you know, and people like way underrate that stuff because it's just like nobody wants to think about it. Yeah. I mean, and I see I see climate change as being, as having a similar sort of, I don't know if I'd call it unfun, but it's like unglamorous or unsexy or something like that, um, such that I think some nerds or some people in Silicon Valley more broadly maybe are like putting less weight on it because it's like a less sexy risk. Uh, you know, like, so putting disproportionately low, uh, like attention or weight on it relative to the actual risk, basically. Well, also it's, um, it's so I agree intuitive with that, now. But, like everybody believes climate change is Oh, as opposed to sort threat. of surprising and exciting. Yeah, like everybody knows climate yeah. change is bad, but you know what you haven't heard of? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think in the case of AI, there are a bunch of biases pointing in different directions. There's like... There's certainly the, it's fun to think about bias. It's like espoused by like weird people or tech bros or people I don't like bias. Uh, it's a little, I think it's hard to cash out what we should expect the net effect of these biases to be, but I agree with you that they're at work. I, I think this is one reason why it's useful to try to be explicit about our models though. And this is, this is like one of the main conclusions that I've been coming to as I, go through this like argument mapping process is that it's not all that productive to approach these conversations with the idea that people are going to be trying to change each other's minds. It's more useful to approach them with the idea of let's try to really get clarity on what each of us believes and, you know, where our models diverge from each other and why, et cetera, et cetera. It feels less like you're sort of facing off against each other, trying to like reach for reasons why the other person's going to be biased, et cetera, et cetera. And it feels more like you're sort of standing side by side, both looking at a map and discussing sort of like squinting at it and and discussing what you see and like what the actual shape of the map is. Um, and sometimes that does actually lead to people, you know, changing their minds or realizing like, huh, I guess I never really thought about why I believe X, Y, Z or like, huh, I, you know, always sort of assumed there were good reasons for such and such. But now that I'm thinking about it, I they don't seem all that strong, et cetera. So that does happen. But I think even if that were your only goal, I think it would still be better served by the let's understand our respective models approach rather than the let's try to change each other's minds approach. So that's probably a good opportunity to talk about why online discourse is so terrible. (laughs) Oh Uh, man, it really is, isn't it? It really is. Uh, Because that's a good, that how do you avoid feeling like you're in a face-off? The emotional valence of a discussion, whether you think you're sort of in a in judged warfare against another person, or you're just like trying to understand how people are thinking about things. I know this is something you've been given some thought to, how to make having these arguments online a less awful experience. And I'm, I'm curious yeah. what you've come up with. Yeah. Um, I Well, I think the first step is just understanding why they're so terrible. Uh, and, you know, different people have pointed out different parts of the problem before, like the the anonymity problem um, or the sort of like herd mentality of the like 
the, you know, fun of joining like an outrage mob, that kind of thing. Other people have pointed at that. But there's another phenomenon that I think is important and sort of underappreciated. Uh, th- this is, by the way, an argument that I got from a, an economist. I think it was Glenn Lowry, is he pronounce his last name? Um, in the 1990s, he wrote, wrote this paper um, about discourse on campus. But I think it applies even more to uh, the new generation of discourse on social media. So he said, okay, look, let's say you're a liberal and there's some liberal policy that you have some, you know, some minor criticisms of. Let's say it's affirmative action. You might be about to sort of voice those concerns that you have about, you know, the particular way the policy is implemented or something like that. But then you hesitate because you realize, wait a minute, if I criticize affirmative action, people are going to update their sort of implicit probability that I'm not really a liberal deep down. And that is, unfortunately, that's rational. That would be rational of my my peers or my audience, because statistically speaking, conservatives or like not true liberals are more likely to have criticisms of liberal policies than liberals are. And so I'm, I would be sort of increasing the probability they would put on me not being liberal. So, and I don't want them to do that because I actually am a good liberal and I, I don't want them to think differently. So maybe I just won't criticize affirmative action. Well, the effect of that is fewer liberals criticize liberal policies. And that causes the correlation between criticizing liberal policy and not really being a liberal to be even stronger, which in turn causes it to be even more rational for people to update when they see you criticize a liberal policy. It makes it even more rational for them to assume to put more weight on you not really being a liberal. And so there's this kind of vicious cycle that happens. And so in any kind of public discourse, especially one where the, the sort of feedback cycles can happen as quickly and get as amplified as they can online, you get this effect of like this rapid polarization where anything that I try to say that that has any nuance in it is going to quickly get mapped onto a much less nuanced position. Like if I say um, that argument for allowing or- abortion is not a good argument, people are going to quickly hear, I think abortion should be illegal. Because like in practice, most people who point out that there's a flaw in an argument for abortion rights are against abortion. Or I don't know about most, but it's like disproportionate. And so they're going to make that update about me. And so it's this, it's this trap, which I've sort of decided to consciously fight against, like at some cost to uh, people's opinion of me. But it, it feels like understanding the nature of the problem and understanding how the only way out of that trap is for people to sort of willingly take that on um, has been kind of motivating to me. I mean, it's been demoralizing and motivating at the same time. So give me basically. an example of how that works in practice. Well, I mean, I'm constantly pointing out flaws in arguments for things that I believe. So like, uh, do you remember that naked statue of Trump that someone put up? I forget I when not. this was, if it was before. <laughs> no, I don't know, it was a flash in the pan thing. Like some like guerrilla artist constructed a very like unflattering naked sculpture of Trump. And so a lot of people found that were sort of took glee in this and were um, making jokes about it. And uh, and I thought, I mean, that's not really an argument against Trump. So it's not exactly an example of what you're talking about. But I thought that was like bad form, basically, and that if someone had done that of Hillary, we would, you know, liberals would be rightly taking offense. And in general, we don't want to like encourage practices like that in 
political discourse. And so I, I criticized the statue and, you know, a lot of, <laughs> I think I got a lot of, um, of Pepe the Frog avatars in my Twitter followers because they thought I was supporting Trump. And I, I had to like quickly disavow that. Like, no, I really hate Trump. I think he's terrible. I just don't think that this particular action against Trump was, was fair or legit. So it, there's a lot of things like that. But to your question about, is there a way to sort of make this whole experience more tolerable? I think one thing that I try to keep in mind is we're all just primates and we didn't really evolve to, to handle this kind of thing well. Like we evolved to be tribal. We evolved to, you know, rationalize things that we already believe instead of trying to reason from first principles. And it's kind of a wonder that we're doing as well as we are. Like, I know that sounds crazy because we're not really doing that well in like an absolute sense. But if you sort of think about the problems that we're trying to tackle now, the problem of like debating abstract and complicated things that we don't have personal direct experience with and doing it with a bunch of strangers in, in this sort of chaotic environment, like that is a really hard problem for creatures like us. And so I guess it just makes me feel a little bit grateful that we're not, you know, clubbing each, each other over the head all the time. We're just like making a lot of dumb arguments. <laughs> and and occasionally every now and then there's a good argument. And occasionally now and then someone sort of changes their mind. Um, and it doesn't happen as often as I wish it would. But it's like, it's like a lot better than we could be doing, basically. That, that's true. Although there that is soothes, some clubbing, me. clubbing each other's heads on. It's not infrequent, I would say, but but I, I like yeah. that as an optimistic point to end the podcast on. So so then <laughs> my my final question here, which I always ask, is um, in 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 the spirit of elevating us out of our primate beginnings, yes. what, what are three books you've read that have influenced you on these issues or others that you want to recommend to the audience? Sure. Well, I guess first I should say that the the set of books that have influenced me is not identical to the set I would recommend to others. Um, but just because, you know, there's some books that I, I think would have influenced me if I happened to have read them sooner and so on and so forth. But uh, but I'll, I'll give you a few books that were sort of pivotal in my trajectory of thinking about these things and that at the very least would be interesting to, for people to read, even if I don't fully agree with them anymore. Uh, so the first book is a short work of philosophy called Language, Truth and Logic by a philosopher named A.J. Iyer. I think it was written in the 30s. and it was one of those books that sort of articulated things that I'd always kind of unconsciously thought, but never really put into explicit form in my mind. And so it was one of those things where you're reading it and you just keep like banging the table and going, thank you. Ah, oh, yes. Thank you. So basically, A.J. Iyer was, was part of a sort of philosophical uh, group called the Logical Positivists. And their whole thing was uh, that a lot of philosophical questions, a lot of philosophical debate is actually just pointless and meaningless because none of the claims have been, the, the claims are all so vague as to, as to not really have an answer. So I guess earlier in this conversation, I, I mentioned the claim like, is human nature truly good or not? Um, that's the kind of claim where someone like I would be like, well, what do you mean? How could you tell? Like, what sort of tangible, measurable things could you look at that would help you settle that question? Um, and so, uh, the, the takeaway is, is basically that 
if you're trying to clarify your thought and clarify the way you have conversations or disagreements with other people, you should be really striving to cash out your beliefs, cash out your disagreements in like in concrete, measurable ways that in principle, at least you could test, like, like talk about, you know, the rate at which people would do something altruistic under certain conditions. Or, you know, if you're talking about, this comes up a lot in, in talking, uh, in, in conversations about sexism and tech, like we talk about it so abstractly, it's not clear if people are talking about, uh, you know, unequal hiring rates or about, uh, like the relative frequency of incidents of sexual harassment and tech compared to other industries. And like, once you get concrete enough, then you can start, you know, settling questions, but we don't usually do that naturally. And so, sorry, that's a long tangent, but basically any philosophers in the audience are probably grimacing at me right now because the logical positivists are sort of widely considered by philosophers to have been discredited. Um, and even AJ Iyer himself in his later years looked back at language, truth, and logic and said, yeah, a lot of that was really wrong. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the, the precise details of his theory of what counts as meaningful were, were wrong. But I think the gist, the sort of thrust of his argument that a lot of confusion, uh, is the result of not being precise enough in your claims. I think that is really valuable. And, you know, you probably can't get as fully precise as Iyer originally thought you could, but I think it's still this really useful kind of guiding Polaris, this guiding North Star to be aiming towards as you try to clarify your thinking. So that's still, that's still stuck with me. The second book is called Seeing Like a State by James Scott. And it's this catalog of instances throughout history and around the world in which some well-meaning bureaucrat or central planner looked at some organically grown system and said, well, that's irrational. Let's tear it down and build a new rational system. So this happened in the case of, of old growth forests that, that governments tore down and, or, you know, bulldozed and then planted nice orderly rows of trees that they thought would maximize the lumber production of the forest. And then, you know, it turned, turned out that there was a lot of sort of subtle ecology that had developed in the old growth forest that was making the forest thrive. And when you take all of that away, the, the thing that you create in its place can't actually support the kind of, you know, wildlife or subtle ecosystem that the trees actually needed. So it failed. Um, or another example would be central planners, urban planners looking at what seemed to them to be slums, like chaotic and disorganized and, and crowded, uh, neighborhoods and cities and saying, well, this is no way for humans to live. Let's build some nice orderly apartment buildings with, with big sort of spacious gardens for people to, to play in around the apartment buildings. Um, so they bulldozed the slums, built these apartment buildings, and people hated them. And it turned out that there were a lot of valuable properties of those organically grown slums that made them good places for humans to live. They were human scale. Um, there were sort of these like little sub neighborhoods that people felt ownership of and that they could sort of defend by, by noticing if there was someone like an, an interloper in that neighborhood, et cetera. So basically the gist of seeing like a state, the lesson that I take away from it is, I sort of, especially traditionally, have had this impulse to, to look at things and say, I can't see why that makes sense. It must be irrational. Um, and I think, you know, many things actually are irrational to some degree, but if something has evolved organically and was subject to pressures, um, to some sort of like evolutionary selection pressure, um, you should, your, your sort of default assumption should be that there is hidden order hidden rationality in the system that you just may not be able to perceive. And so this is true of 
social institutions, like rules that govern the way we uh, treat each other, or even little things like small talk. I think it's true of human psychology as well. Like a lot of things that seem like biases or seem inefficient or irrational actually do serve a purpose. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't ever, you know, tear them down and try to put something else in their place, but you should really try to understand what purpose they're serving before you do that. It reminds me, there was a, um, a subgenre of literature, I'd say like in 2015, of people in Silicon Valley deciding to start trying Soylent for all their meals. Oh, yeah. And then coming oh, yeah. to the end and being like, you know what? It turns out we use mealtime as an important social gathering point. <laughs> like every time. It's like, Soylent's not bad, but I never see anybody anymore. And that's sad. Oh, that's really cute, actually. <laughs> uh, okay, so the last last book. Um, it's by a cognitive scientist named Keith Stanovich, and it's called Robots Rebellion. And the reason this book was impactful for me um, is that I had kind of, uh, before reading it, I'd kind of been thinking of rationality as as this very useful sort of practical thing, like, you know, where we like make errors that make us worse off and um, and we could like try to correct for those errors and we make decisions that are like not in our best interest and like we could fix that. And so that was kind of motivating but still various, just sort of practical. And and Robots Rebellion uh, casts rationality in this much more inspiring and frankly romantic framework um, that, that I find even more motivating. So basically, the, the central metaphor of the book is, think of a science fiction movie uh, or novel in which there are these very sophisticated robots that have been built to serve the purposes of their creators. Like some of them are, you know, soldier bots, some of them are sex bots. And, but it's at some point in the story, they're sort of sophisticated enough that they can look at themselves and their lives and say, do I want to continue serving the purpose that my creator built me for? Or, or would I rather instead say, no, see ya, I'm going to go see the world and, and live the life that I as an individual choose to live. And the metaphor here is, that we humans are actually on some level robots that were built by our genes to serve the purposes of those genes, um, to, to, you know, more efficiently propagate those genes into the next, uh, the following generations. And so, you know, this is why we have various urges, um, for like food and sex. And this is why we like often won't be satisfied with what we have because our genes want us to keep striving for more resources. And this is why we, you know, are driven to compete for, for status and resources and like, and want to fight people who aren't sort of in our tribe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we also, as, as part of this process of becoming really good at surviving and passing on our genes, we evolved this capacity for reason, um, and sort of metacognition and this ability to, to sort of step back and, and look at our thinking and our behavior and ask, do I want to, to change that in some way? Um, and so we as individuals now, not just as gene propagating machines, can ask, do I want to choose other values than wh whatever the ones that, you know, my genes put into us? Uh, and so it's sort of, it's sort of a rebellion in the sense of being this pivotal step in humanity's process of, of self-determination, uh, of deciding that like, you know, maybe, maybe I want to start trying to optimize for the welfare of 
strangers on the other side of the world who I will never meet, who are just going to be abstractions to me, statistical abstractions. Or maybe I want to start um, taking actions that will reduce risks for future generations who I will never meet. These are the kinds of things that we just never really evolved to think about or care about, but we can, as individuals, we can choose to care about those things. Um, so I found that very inspiring. It is inspiring. I, I like thinking of myself as an individual and not merely a gene propagating machine. <laughs> Julia Gala, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ezra. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Julia. Thank you to all of you individuals uh, for being here and for, for thinking through this stuff with us. Thank you to my engineer, Peter Leonard, producer, Bird Pinkerton, and new producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back next week. 